I didn't understand still how significant it was that the first person to buy a piece of my jewelry was a buyer from Tiffany's. I didn't understand how great it was that QBC was going to scout me there, that Saks Fifth Avenue wanted this new talent on their roster. Rain Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the award-nominated podcast, Unleash Your Supernova. This is a companion podcast to the Unleash Your Supernova book, a guide to survive and thrive as a creative entrepreneur. I am your host, Nova Lorraine, award-winning fashion designer, author, founder, as well as award-nominated producer, in addition to being a poet, advisor, actor, and mother. Just like an exploding star, we all have the ability to shine millions of times more than the sun, to expand into the greatest, brightest version of ourselves, reaching our fullest potential. I'm excited to bring you another show where storytelling comes to you at its best. I'm going to be introducing you to creatives that are doing what they love while changing the world. We'll learn words of wisdom from these wonderful rising stars from around the globe and discover how they've unleashed their superpowers. Welcome, Constantina. Thank you, Nova. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. And I'm just going to share with the listeners a little bit about your background. Constantina Dimitra is an award-winning designer and founder of Malia Collection, a boutique luxury brand devoted to creating things of heritage with longevity and timeless aesthetics. Constantina was born in Vancouver, Canada from Greek parents. Her jewelry has been worn by celebrities such as Hilary Swank and has appeared in museums such as the Louvre. Constantina is known as a maverick and nonconformist and believes in permanence and responsibility as opposed to consumerism. Whoa, I can't wait to get into details about your background. There's so much there. And I just want to welcome you again. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. I remembered from our first conversation how intriguing you were and the stories you were sharing with me. So I'm happy that you're going to be able to share some of those with our listeners. So how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a, a pleasure to be on your podcast. Yeah. And there were a couple of things that stood out to me in your bio that I just read that I'm looking forward to diving into. But before we start the show, I want to just remind our listeners and then also clue in those that are joining us for the first time, the format of the show. So we're going to dive into some storytelling, learn more about you and how you've unleashed your superpowers. We're going to discuss a couple questions relating to the book, Unleash Your Supernova. And we're going to dive into the topic of the day, which is all about are our artisans dying? Are craftsmen going away? And how can we preserve this beautiful form of artistry that exists in so many areas in our lives? And then we are going to hand you the microphone where you're going to ask me any question you like. And then we're going to wrap it up with questions from our listeners. So are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So I like to start off the show lately with just asking you why. Why are you doing what you're doing? You know, I feel that the reason that drives us each day is so important and not everyone is doing what they're doing for the right reasons. And it's something that I dive into in the book in the very first chapter of Unleash Your Supernova. But 
with the individuals that I'm meeting that are accomplishing such amazing things, it's really fascinating to learn about their why. So I'm just going to start there. Why are you doing what you do each and every day with the Malia collection? I think it started by my mother being very intentional that I wouldn't lose my heritage by being raised in North America. The history, my history of being Greek and where we came from was huge. And of course, the canons of Western art begin there, right? The Greek statues, Greek architecture, poetry, theater. We Our canons in, in Western culture began on those shores. And so when they took me there when I was 10, for the first time. It was just really memorable to me that I would see all these ruins and there was rocks and rubble. But the museums held these these vessels of gold that were pretty much perfectly intact. And it made such an impression on me at such a young age that these represented the, these people that lived so long and snippets of who they were and how they lived and, and what they were wearing. And that it lasted that long, like thousands of years. So I think that was really, really the blueprint for the future. Hmm. So by being born in North America and coming from Greek heritage, your parents, specifically your mom, really wanted to make sure you didn't lose that knowledge and that history. And so you what you weave that into what you do. And do you, with your jewelry collection and the other products that you produce under your brand, do each of those speak to your culture? Does it enlighten the individuals that are coming across it or purchasing it about your culture? I don't know so much. Maybe the jewelry does uh, more so because mm -hmm. it, it's heavily gold. I was in the World Gold Council's global portfolio twice wow. because they represent jewelers who whose work is gold intensive, not stones. It's a very different sort of look. But in terms of textiles and furnishings, no, I would say my, my aesthetic is more European, period, than Greek, for sure. Because Greece is not really known for those elements. I love fashion. I love interior design. Again, the pieces that I create are incredibly crafted and mm. labor-intensive to make, but they don't really reference what's going on in, in my heritage, no. Okay, so it's the metals that you work with represent your Greek heritage as it relates to gold. But the sure. aesthetic is a more, I guess, worldly aesthetic. Right, right. and then I did a collection, another collection, which I closed down last year called The Silk Road. And uh -huh. The Silk Road was aligned with my affiliation for Buddhist and Tibetan culture. I'm a supporter of the Tibet Fund in New York. Oh, wow. And so that culture became very close to me. I've also gone to Santa Fe a lot. And there's a compound in Santa Fe of Tibetans, diaspora, who live there. And when you walk inside those walls, it's like you're transported. They live very similarly to how they live back in their homeland. And when we made the collection, I would sit on the floor on their carpets and coach them through the designs that I, I was asking them to make with the silk cording. So I would give them all the beads. So for me, there was this connection. I called the Silk Road because Alexander the Great, of course, went and explored and conquered all the way into Asia. And then all this intermix of culture began. And so for me, it was a natural segue somehow that this was part something I also wanted to create and I wanted it's a very, very different look. That was a collection without the Louvre. 
That's a collection that was at the Asia Society. There was a, a company called Scoop. They've closed now. Another company, K and Sons, in Japan. A lot of people loved that line because it was so intricate and color intensive, and not as expensive as my metal collections. Oh, interesting! Wow, and you know what's fascinating is how a creator, designer, storyteller can really find inspiration from anything. And to you know, use these craftsmen as well as the materials you use to create a collection like this is no, fascinating. Yeah. To it me. was a super special experience to be in their home, yeah, and part of their universe for those periods of time. It was a very, very special time for me, for sure. In my book, Unleash Your Supernova, I have a whole section devoted to mindfulness. And as you were describing、mm-hmm. this process. That you were involved in with these Tibetans just reminded me of what it means to be mindful and how you can really weave that into anything that you're doing. And this process,、oh, it just sounds beautiful. Like sitting on the floor and taking the time that had to be used to incorporate into these pieces for it to turn out in the way that it has is incredible.、Well. Yeah, there's the other side of that was the pragmatic side. We got this huge order from Scoop. I was showing in Paris at the Place Vendôme, and I didn't have the silk road out because for me it's high jewelry, right? It's not appropriate.、Mm-hmm. And I was talking to this other girl. She goes, "No, no, no! You have to put out the silk road." What do you mean? It's beautiful. So I put it out on the mantelpiece. I was sitting. My place was in front of the fireplace. So we have to think. This is Louis the Sixteenth. His mistresses. Ex bedroom, which is yeah, mind tripping of itself that you're standing there, and we got this amazing order, and so it's like these guys have no idea how to what time me, you know, they've lived in a world where、right. it's irrelevant. Yeah. So I take all the materials <laughs> with me. I get to Santa Fe, and the only way for it to be delivered on time was for me to sit on the floor with them for three days and three nights, literally, <laughs> and. They would have potluck because they realized we were running out of time. They invited some friends over, so by the end, you know, we have like ten, fifteen people on the floor helping make bracelets. Nobody's getting paid, just coming to help out as friends. I love and it, and it was just mind blowing. It was also because they kind of are very, very simple people. So the concept of this has to be done by this day, or my order is going to be canceled. Right, was like completely foreign to them. <laughs> <laughs> like whatever, we're just enjoying the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pass the batter or whatever. Oh man, oh man. I love that story, and it's so visual, and it reminds me something you mentioned to me when we first spoke about how you even started your collection. And I would love for you to share the beginnings of stepping into this fashion world without having the background and or. Legacy family in the fashion industry and how you made your way because there's so many creatives that want to go into the fashion industry that don't come from a lot of money or a family that has been in manufacturing for decades or centuries. And I just want you to share the beginnings of your story really quickly before we go into the topic of the day. Thank you. Well, for one, I was at the. I'm from Vancouver, but I was had one semester under my belt. And did not want to run around in the rain to school anymore, so I hop stopped down to Arizona. And then suddenly, there's tents all over the city in January, February, 
and find out there's this gem show on, which didn't mean anything to me, right? But then I was talking to a jeweler in Vancouver who was doing repairs for me. And he's like, well, you're going to school on Tuesday. He goes, you should go to the gem show. I'm like, well, what's that? He's like, it's the biggest in the world. You should go just to look. Well, as somebody who's already creatively bent, you go and you see all these materials and you go and you see all this diversity of humanity because you have bead people from the Sudan, you have gemstones from Brazil, you have diamond people from India, you have diamond people from Israel, you have, I mean, it's just a cornucopia. And for me, having grown up in Vancouver that was so ethnically diverse, I just identified and bonded with that. And then it was, well, what do I do with it? I don't want to just buy this stuff. It's like, what can I do with it? And so I was, I was actually an English major, but switched over to business. After I got my English degree, I was a, a double honor student. And so because I was a really good student from a very small elite group, they accepted me into the business school. Mm. And there were 75 of us admitted there. By Christmas, half had dropped. So only 35 of us finished. Of the 35 that finished, the 75 admitted five were girls. And of the 35 that finished five, all five girls finished. I just was my business plan. So I was trained to think of how are you going to get an investor? How are you going to do the marketing? How are you going to do distributorship? Wasn't trained in design. The design for me was easy. I was born with that. It was, and the other part for me was actually pretty easy too. And I didn't have capital. So what I had is Greek families, Indian families, families in the Mediterranean basin, basically the old cultures are always gifting gold. It has permanence, it has importance, it has equity. And Mm. so I took every scrap I had and I melted it and I made it into designs of mine with these goldsmiths. Luckily, they were old school trained. And so they saw in what I asked of them an uncommon talent. And so they were like, look, you're going to be doing fine jewelry. What you're asking us to do is fine jewelry. So it has to be stamped. It has always be 18 karat gold. It's going to have your signature on it. And all these these rules started evolving that I sort of assimilated. And then it was like, well, I'm in Tucson and the biggest gem show is here. So I don't really have to go anywhere. I can just ask for a setup and the whole world comes to me. And that's what happened. And the jewelry was of caliber that it set me up with the top of the top. That's Tiffany's coming and that Cartier coming. And anybody who's anybody in jewelry comes to Tucson in those months of the year. And I didn't even realize how grand that was. I didn't understand still how significant it was that the first person to buy a piece of my jewelry was a buyer from Tiffany's. I didn't understand how great it was that QBC was going to scout me there, that Saks Fifth Avenue wanted this new talent on their roster. So it just also that I just learned from everybody because I'm very friendly and I'm very curious. And so people would teach me, well, this is a tourmaline. This is a presiolite. This is a this, this is a that. This is a good diamond. This is a bad diamond. Things that I had, I had no knowledge of, like no knowledge. I had an eye, but I didn't know what I was doing. Right. Well, that just goes to show you that with the desire and curiosity, that is enough to lead you into whatever you're going to do, right? Not necessarily the knowledge all the time, because if you have the patience and you have the, I would say the, almost like the, I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. I don't care. I'm just going to ask questions. I'm going to be 
humble enough to be in this space as a student. And right. with that, people are going to want to help me, want to guide me. They, want to- and that's the truth. The truth is, yes, people ended up taking advantage of me, but truly, truly, very generously helped me as well. And one of the people that was instrumental, that very first show, like I didn't even know I was supposed to be collecting business cards. Like this guy came up to me after the third day and goes, you know, you really should keep business cards from the people that walked by and make little notes on them. And I was like, like little notes about what? He was like, who they are, what they were interested in, you know? One of the people there, his he was a multiple award-winning designer. Yeah. And his wife, so at that show, everybody's like, you know, this is Tucson, it's great. The biggest, biggest show, the biggest show is in Vegas in June. And you don't have enough credentials and you don't have any accounts. And so you don't have... You don't have the background to get in, but we'll lend you a pass from our company and then you can come in. You just do what you did in Tucson. Just cruise around, ask questions, look, figure it out. Like you'll figure it out. So I go to Vegas in June and this woman sees me and recognizes me from the show in Tucson. And I still get sentimental when I say this because she was so generous. She saw a talent in me. And she's like, here, you have to come with me. She goes, come and meet this woman. She's the one that curates anybody in for the competition. If you win this competition, they're going to give you a booth. And I mean, what do you mean they give me a booth? And she goes, they'll give you a booth. They'll pay for your booth and they'll pay for your press. Like, just talk to her. And Mm. she literally took me by the hand and introduced me to the person who was the person that curated all the entries for JCK Rising Star. And so I got Rising Star. And so Rising Star paid for my exhibition space, which I couldn't have afforded. Besides, which I think at that time, they had like a 10-year waiting list to get in. You just couldn't even get in. So that was my ticket in. And so QBC, Neiman Marcus, I mean, it made a big difference. That's amazing. That is such an inspiring story. I want to move into the topic of the day. I think this is a really good transition point where... Mm -hmm we were having this conversation earlier around the the dying art of handwork and craftsmanship yeah. as it relates to working right. with precious metals, as it relates to working with precious textiles as well. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm a couture designer. You are a bespoke jewelry maker, but also work with other bespoke items in your luxury brand. And we both share the sentiment of the lack of knowledge around what goes into creating these beautiful works of art that are timeless and would last forever. I mean, just that story you were sharing with the Tibetans in Santa Fe Mm -hmm. just gives a glimpse of what goes into producing these incredible items. And why don't we start there? What are your thoughts around, is this form of artistry dying? And then let's jump into how can we save it? What can we do? Because I really believe in speaking more around solutions. So let's first answer that question. Is this form of artistry as it relates to handwork, craftsmanship with metals, with textiles, is it dying? It's absolutely dying. And I mean, I've spent months hunting through the best schools in Europe where my first goldsmiths came were from Hungary. They were trained at this amazing goldsmith school in Budapest and it's closed now. My goldsmith's niece graduated from there. She works as something else in 
London now. She doesn't do and have anything to do with jewelry. The other goldsmith who made some of my things, he's still in Vancouver. There's one shop that needs his skills. I went to Le Col Boule, I went to Le Col des Arts Decoratifs in Paris. Most of them are being trained on CAD now. They're being trained somewhat. There's this woman in Paris who has won the Légion d'Honneur for her work within the jewelry industry because she's such a rarity, everybody's male. And when I went to her and said, hey, can you make my things? One, the cost was six times as high in Paris, six. Wow. And secondarily, she had one older man in her team who could make my pieces because you have to make everything by hand on my pieces. You cannot make them on a computer. And nobody was trained to do that anymore on her team. In her whole atelier, one man was left and he was older. So I always knew, I mean, that's why I went to Paris to look because even I was talking to the manager of Cartier in the Place Vendôme, I mean, they cater to royalty. Those are their clients, not just celebrities, royal families. We're having dinner and he says, who, who makes your jewelry? He was curious. And I was telling him and he's like, Armenian families, even in, in Europe, in Paris, this group of this culture, they're wonderful goldsmiths, but they're one of the only ones left pretty much. So even in in Italy, even in France, even in Spain, most of it has turned to computer generated designs now. They just, it's much more time effective. They can produce it more quickly. It's less labor intensive. They don't need the artisans. They can keep their businesses running. So they're selling out. Hmm. They're selling out. Even as we're turning to embroidered textiles, I'm having some pieces made in India right now. They're extremely intricate, even on a computer generated system is taking us months in in R&D, but still not the same as having it done by hand. It's just, there's, you can only do so much by hand. There's only so much you can produce. Right. Yeah. I will, I will share the same sentiment as it relates to couture. And we had discussed how some of the bigger houses like Chanel has really helped save and preserve some of these skill sets that have been passed on through family members and, you know, over the generations, over the, you know, the decades where the skill set originated. And without that, a lot of these artisans would have lost their positions and the skill set would have died with them. Well, and sure. when someone has the ability or the opportunity to wear an item that is bespoke, that is handmade from love, it is such a different experience than mass produced. And it could be something made from your grandmother, well, it could be, or something made from Couture House, such as Dior or the Malia collection. Well, one of it, my favorite things to do, and I'm sure you can relate to that, is, yeah. is repurposing, repurposing textiles, repurposing right. ribbons. I have a huge archive of And people would find out who I was and what I did. And they would come and sell me their lace collection. They would Mm. come and sell me the ribbon collections. And so a lot of my textile pieces are made from things that are from the 30s and 40s. They just don't make anymore. The buttons, the lace. So, of course, you can only make one garment. I only have enough. And I design the piece around the material because I only have so much material. Yeah. I love it. So what would you say is a solution to this issue? How do we preserve buying them? Yeah, give them work. If they can make a livelihood at it, they'll do it. If I, I, like in my case, 
I always knew from day one, if I can't make a living at this, it's going to stop. So I have to figure out how I'm going to make a living. And I wasn't concerned with being famous or wealthy. I was, I want to be able to do this so that I can do what I love. And so it has, it starts there. And then thank God I'm pragmatic and Mm -hmm. very business minded because a lot of the people that I won those initial awards with were older than I and more experienced than I, and they're not in business anymore. Mm -hmm. So what was the difference? The difference is I think I just, you keep going. What's next? What's next? Like coming up with the Silk Road collection. Nothing to do with fine jewelry. Completely different vernacular. I was juggling 15, 20 different materials to make a collection easily. I would have mood boards with just silk colors and beads because the beads have different board dips and so some of the silks didn't go through. And then the Tibetans were like, we can't get the silk through us. We can't make the silk knotting. Just the the mechanics of making that collection were so much more difficult than the fine jewelry and very, very beautiful. But I mean, I'm also, it's a problem solving determination of mine, right? Okay, this doesn't work. What's next? How how do we do this part? How do we do that part? How do we do the next part? How do we find, you know, the place that's going to buy these things? And for me, it was also these Tibetans, when they came from Tibet, were refugees. Okay. You know, this is a genocide going on. Mm, Wow. And so to give them work also meant they could preserve their artisanry, their heritage, Mm -hmm. their culture. They weren't going to be getting a job at Whole Foods. They were going to be able to make money doing something that was part of their heritage and not be annihilated. So the takeaway I would, would say is to, for anyone listening, if you have something you want to bring into the world, to keep in mind artisans that work by hand and to think about that as a form of sustainability, not just as it relates to the amount that we're putting out in the environment, but also sustaining heritage, culture, livelihood, and financial sustainability for artisans. So just think about that in your business models. What can you do to preserve the aspect that still makes us human? that we can create with our hands. Yes, the computer's amazing. We use it every day and in many facets of our lives, but we were given the gift to create with our hands. And how can we preserve that across? And that's that's part of our storytelling. That's how we Mm -hmm. began human beings sitting around a campfire. I mean, these are our stories. This is our heritage. These are our roots. We have no, when we talk about demolishing a rainforest or or destroying a lake with pollutants. Or, you know, I just saw an image yesterday of mountains of clothing abandoned in the deserts of Chile. And some of these will never dissolve because they're made of plastics now. That's right. But like I said, the responsibility is profound. And I think one of the things that I'm so offended by, by commercialized production is they're cannibalizing their own future. By creating objects that are mass produced, they are one, lying to the consumer about how things are made. And it's a story they're sold that's not about true artisanry when it's produced on a machine and finished by hand, one. Secondarily, they're lying about what's important in the preservation of culture. So we're a French brand, we're an Italian brand, we're an English brand, this is our artisan. We make lace, we make leather, we do this, whatever. But the reality is they're the first ones to cut the throat of the person that's too expensive to make it. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. 
I can talk about this topic literally all day because it goes so much deeper than this. We are scratching the surface, but I do want to bring this to the attention of our listeners and for them to share it with their communities. There is a whole set of skill sets that are dying with artisans all over the world. And it is a part of our culture and history as humans. And we should do whatever we can do to save those skill sets and that knowledge and that history. And again, that really ties into the bigger picture of sustainability. And so just keep that in mind, but I also want to make sure we have enough time to move to move into the next two segments of our show where mm-hmm. I'm going to hand you the microphone. You're going to play host. You can ask me whatever question you like, and then we'll get to the questions from our listeners. All right. So I was saying earlier, this very you're very, very interesting to me. So I get, I'm so <laughs> pleased I get to switch, switch the mic. There's a certain interconnectivity I see. So you have the Rain School of Fashion. You have Rain Magazine. You're an author of Unleash Your Supernova. You're the founder of Pink Kangaroo. You're a fashion designer. You have a master's in psychology. You have this podcast. You have a multimedia company. So what's the drive? What is the thread that ties all this together? What is this passion of yours? Is it, what is it? Tell me. I love that question. There are a lot of things that I'm doing and or have done, but each have been driven by my desire to one, do what I love. And that includes inspiring people, inspiring communities, inspiring my family, my children, my parents to do what they love, to find a way to be joyful. And it doesn't mean that it's your day job. It doesn't have to be that, but to find a way to incorporate something that you love within your life. And I'm an immigrant. My parents immigrated here from Jamaica. I'm one of six. And I saw how hard they worked. I saw how much they sacrificed so they could provide for us. But then they also found a way to do the things that they loved. And they did it as more of their hobbies because they needed their day jobs to support a family of six. And they really believed in us getting an education and setting that example for us. So we would be able to go on and go to college as the first generation to go to school here in the US. And so seeing that, I didn't take that for granted. I really appreciated all that my parents had done for me. And I wanted to find a way to not only say thank you to them, but then also be true to myself. And I've also always had the passion of helping others and particularly teens and young adults. As a teenager, that's when that desire started. Um, and never went away. I'm a mom now of teens and young adults. And I believe that they are so hungry for guidance and knowledge. And they are still close to that very childlike inner self of just wanting to be happy, just wanting to go outside and skip and jump and play and, you know, until it gets dark outside and helping others along the way. And so if we can tap into that audience, as we grow and evolve and share the knowledge we have and pass it forward. Because as you were sharing earlier, it's just a matter of taking that next step and then taking that next step and never giving up and being persistent. So as a storyteller, I just look for different mediums to tell the story, to share the story. So it started with psychology and then fashion and 
media with rain and expanding into podcasts and books. It's those are just tools to tell the story, to pass the knowledge forward, to encourage and inspire others to never give up on their dreams. I would say we're kind of sisters from another mother. (laughs) (laughs) I love that term. (laughs) Very much so, especially because both of our families were immigrants. Both of us were raised with this work ethic. Both were given the importance of, of the value of education. There's no question, maybe I'm not trained in, but English as my first degree was storytelling. How these stories come down over centuries, reading Chaucer and yeah. how it's still relevant, how listening to the Greek plays and how those characters are as real today as they were thousands of years ago. This is who we are. And I think we can't lose sight of it. And it's being erased. And it's people don't understand the consequences, the damage that's going to cause. That's it's, right. We are generational creatures. We are the result of generations that came before us. You can't ignore that. It's to our detriment. That's so powerfully stated. And I echo all of that. It's so true. And this will, I think, tie into the next segment of the show, which we're going to bring in a question from our reader or reader. I say reader because we're talking about books too. Listener. (laughs) I hope they're also a reader of the Supernova book. (laughs) But so the question from our listener is, Constantina, knowing that it took many steps to get to where you are, was there a time where you wanted to give up? And how did you get past that? Always, every week, every week. (laughs) So true, right? Um, it's every week. The story of and, an entrepreneur. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Here's one of the great stories. The founder of my school, when I went to business school, our school outranked Harvard and Wharton's wow. in the entrepreneurship program, 2004. And the man that built the school, Carl Eller, had, was in his 60s. He had built and failed at several businesses. One of his partners, his ex-partner, was actually Ted Turner. He found the wherewithal to try one more time, and he built Circle K. And Circle K was the game changer. Mm. And gave him enough money to build our school, leave a foundation, build the dad school at the school. Our rejects go to Juilliard, New York. And so here's this small relatively small state school Mm -hmm. that had this legacy built by this man who would not give up. Mm. And I think that's the determining factor. The person that's going to, and I was talking to this woman who, she's two-time silver Olympic swimmer, gold Mm -hmm. medalist. Mm -hmm. And it's due to her foundation that Simone Biles and the others are testifying in front of Congress right Mm -hmm. now. She built the legal fund to defend them. Wow. And I was just fascinated. I said, how did, what do you have to say about it? She goes, she looked at me, she goes, you can be anything you want to be. Like I could have been a gold medalist, but being a silver medalist was like, it's all in your mind. It's not about talent necessarily. It's how far you're willing to push yourself. And Mm -hmm. that's the advice I would be, I would say I'd give. You have to find where it is in your soul to pull it back out and say, I have to keep going or this all stops. And it's not just me. It's like I said, the artisans who now don't have work. It's the legacy that stops being produced. Right. These pieces that are going to outlive us that are a cumulation of how many people to make each thing. 
How many people? I wrote a put a post on LinkedIn the other day, and I it was this piece, and it's a hand carved skull and profile of obsidian that comes from this stone carver in Germany, mm. and there's an inscription on the pendant. It's like a little gate that opens on the pendant, yeah. and the inside of the gate reads, "The only thing you take with you is what you give away," and that was shared with me by an ex priest who had become an, an Academy Award-winning claymation director, wow. storyteller. So I was like, here we are, the stone carver from Germany, the goldsmith, the stone setter, the priest, the ex, the saint who wrote these words, and the designer. All of our lives are woven into this. Amazing. I love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all these words of wisdom, all the pearls, all the gems. I hope our listeners really took a lot out of this conversation. It was so inspiring. I really felt like I was in class and I'm a lifelong <laughs> learner. I Listen, I no apologies. I am the student. I'm always the student. I love learning. I really do. So thank you for all that you shared. I thought it was incredible. How can our listeners stay in touch with you? They want to know more. They want to reach out to you in whatever way. If they want to support you and your brand, your collections, how can they stay in touch with you? I'm pretty visible. I have quite a a social media network. So LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. But I would say Instagram is probably the most live. And LinkedIn. I'm very active on both of those. And my website maliacollection.com maliacollection.com that's m-a-h-l-i-a collection and you can also sign up for our our email blasts our newsletters i travel a lot i love to cook so you can get my recipes and my travel tips on my website as well Ooh, Uh, yes (laughs) awesome so maliacollection.com and is that the same handle for instagram Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Perfect. So stay in touch with Constantina. She's amazing, incredibly inspiring. And if you have not seen her work and her jewelry, breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. So yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And for our listeners, if you haven't yet gotten a copy of the book, Unleash Your Supernova, what are you waiting for? No, no more delays. All right, go and get it today. It's available at all of your favorite bookstores, Amazon, Books A Million, Bards & Noble, no more excuses. Go and get it today. It is your guide and how you can survive and thrive on the journey of creative entrepreneurship. Again, I want to thank my beautiful guest, Constantina, and sharing her words of wisdom. And if you love the show, if you got anything out of today's conversation, please subscribe, please share. We want as many people as possible to be inspired to never give up on their dreams. I'm exactly. Nova Rain. Yes, thank you, Constantina. I'm Nova Lorraine, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Unleash Your Supernova, brought to you by the Pink Kangaroo Podcast Network, as well as the Evergreen Podcast Network. Remember to subscribe and share, and to continue to unleash your supernova. Thank you. Thank you.